Welcome! You're listening to audio of Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. At ICC, we are being transformed by Jesus to impact our world. Wherever you are as you listen today, we want you to know that we love and appreciate you. We're so glad you're here. We hope today's message will help you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thanks again for joining us. Well, good morning, church family. It's great to see you guys this morning. I am Barrett Bowden, lead pastor here at Island Community Church, and I just want to say I love you. I welcome you. I truly hope this morning that you have a sense of family and more importantly, a sense of the love that God has for you and the love that we have for you. If you've got your Bible, I would ask that you get it open this morning to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 18. The book of 2 Samuel chapter 18. It is my great joy this morning to have the privilege to teach God's word to you today and also to continue our series, which is called Redeeming Grace. If you're new this morning, uh, we have been walking through the book of 2 Samuel together. It's typically our practice with some exceptions and certain seasons, but in, in typical, it's our practice to just go through books of the Bible And right now we're going through the book of 2 Samuel. And I've been saying over and over again and other teachers who've been teaching as well that the theme of this book is very evident. And it's this. Y'all can read it with me if you know it or if you can see the screen. God is faithful to redeem his people and fulfill his covenant of grace. One more time. God is faithful to redeem his people and to fulfill his covenant of grace. Well, this morning, I'm thrilled to be able to continue our series by talking to you about this theme. And if you've got something to take notes this morning, I would ask always that you find a way to take notes so that you would not just be one that listens, but really seeks to understand. And not just one that receives, but later can turn around and give what God has taught you to someone else. I was incredibly blessed last week. One of the members of our church came up and he said, I'm so glad you say at the start of messages to take notes because we need to be discipling others and what we learn. He said, last weekend I got called into this conference and I was trying to think, what do I teach? He said, I just took out my sermon notes and retaught something that I'd learned here. And he said, everybody was like, that was awesome. And so I'm not, uh, I just was so blessed by that just because ultimately we are disciples, but we're also disciple makers. So I encourage you to engage with the scripture this morning. This morning's theme is restoring grace, restoring grace. And the subtitle of today's message, if you're taking notes, is God's healing in brokenness. God's healing and brokenness. Now, one of the things that I do want to point out, this is an exception uh, to how we have done the rest of 2 Samuel, but this particular week, um, the whole passage in focus uh, that we had organized for this week is chapters 18 through 21. But if you notice on the screen here, I today in this morning's message am only going to be teaching on part one of this particular passage. To get part two of the scriptural exposition through all the rest of 21, you're going to have to go this week to my podcast and listen to this podcast episode that drops tomorrow morning called Extending Restoration to Others, all right? You can search Transform for Impact uh, in your podcast store. I'll give you a sneak peek on tomorrow's podcast. You'll see an exposition of the latter half of chapter 19 and 20, and you'll learn five ways that you can extend restoration to others. Focusing on God, finding ways to bring unity, forgiving as he's forgiven you, fixing past wrongs and making them right, and fueling encouragement and hope. It's a key piece of your understanding of the whole book of 2 Samuel, but this particular week, I just need you to trust me that the way we've organized it, this morning you're only going to be getting part of the chapters that are in focus. So I don't want anybody later to say, he skipped whole half of the thing. Okay, I skipped it this morning, but I didn't pastorally, all right? Is everybody with me there? But this morning, our focus is restoring grace, Restoring grace, God's healing in brokenness. I want to go ahead and give you our core truth this morning um, before we read the text. And this morning, I am here to just, to just exhort you to know Jesus. My whole aim this morning is just to, to, 
to lift up the person of Jesus and to have you see more of who he is. This morning, I want in particular to just help you see that Jesus is a restorer, a restorer of brokenness. And in the most painful places, Jesus offers healing and Jesus offers hope. Jesus is a restorer, a restorer of brokenness. And in the most painful places, Jesus offers healing and hope. This morning, I believe that the Holy Spirit is ministering among us, and I believe that his word is true and active and alive, and I believe that there is something that God wants to minister in you today. Perhaps there's a painful place, a very broken place in your heart, in your life, that God wants this morning to just remind you of who he is, that he's a restorer in places of your brokenness and of your pain, and he wants this morning for you to come to him for healing and for hope. We're going to be looking at a section of the whole uh, of this particular week's focus. This morning we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 18 verse 1 through chapter 19 verse 8 and that's where we're going to stop. I want to give you, unlike other weeks, I'm going to give you the overview of the whole thing before we actually read uh, what we're going to be reading this morning. In chapters 18 through 21 of 2 Samuel, what we're going to be reading about in the first section, our main focus of the day, is going to be picking up in this massive rebellion. If y'all remember, where we come into this particular text is Absalom, David's son, has, after a kind of fake kind of reconciliation with David, he's actually, his true heart has been exposed And he's rebelled horrifically against his dad, against the king, against God, and really ultimately against the nation. And he tries to take control. And we've been in the in the middle of this massive rebellion that Absalom has had been planning and and actively trying to carry out against the throne and against his dad, King David. Well, in the passage we're going to be looking at today, we're going to see the tragic end of this rebellion, and that's going to be Absalom's death as he attempts to overtake David and Israel. But then as you look at the rest of the chapters and the focus this week, at the end of chapter 19, what we see is a renewal come into David's leadership, his ability to return into Jerusalem as the true king of the whole nation, and the beginning of a new and renewed season of leadership for him. In chapter 20, we see others in the kingdom try to lead rebellion. They end up failing. And in chapter 21, we see some conflicts. Uh, First, an internal conflict, uh, basically an ethnic conflict that had dated back before David's reign that David has an opportunity to make right. And then we see at the end of chapter 21, an external conflict, a conflict with the Philistines and God giving victory over them. So that's kind of what's going on in these chapters. But what I want to do this morning is just focus on the details and ultimately the deeper purpose of God's truth in the first section here of chapter 18, starting in verse 1 through chapter 19, verse 8 as we focus ourselves on the brokenness and the pain that often we experience in the world, but on God's restoration, healing, and hope. Starting in chapter 18, verse 1, hope you read with me in your Bible. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army one-third under the command of Joab, and one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. 
And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under a thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and they raised over him a very great heap of stones and all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry the news to the king that, that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab, and he ran. And then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain, and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and he looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man and, and comes with good news. Well, then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and he said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men and who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, 
When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom! My son! My son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your concubines and wives because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose. And he took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. This is God's word. Today we're going to be talking about restoring grace. God's healing and brokenness. And our core truth for the day, if you haven't already written it down, I'm going to give you plentiful opportunities today. How does that sound? Jesus is a what? Restorer of brokenness. And in the most painful places, he offers healing and hope. One of the things we see as we open the chapter, you know, um, As we closed our message and teaching last week, what we saw was that David had just been at a point of just being completely overwhelmed. Um, Overwhelmed, sure, by Absalom's rebellion. Really, Absalom's rebellion was a height of just so much trouble and conflict and sin within his family. All of it seeming to mirror in ways David's own personal sin and his own lack of leadership, it seems, and his own family. And just conflict after conflict and the height of it now is just coming 
to surface, which is Absalom's rebellion. And we saw in the last chapters as David seemed to be dealing with such toxic guilt and just lingering shame over his past sins, looking too much at his past sin rather than the, the present grace of, and the gospel of Jesus, um, that in many ways, it looks like he's not standing confidently in his calling and confidently in grace and confidently uh, to, to, to really lead out in faith in the ways that I believe that we can all recognize that he should have. And he's fled and he's kind of been down on himself and let other people be down on himself and he's on the outskirts of Jerusalem and the Absalom is conspiring against him. But then we saw, do you remember at the end of the chapters we read last week that there are some, some God's confused. He's, God has intervened on David's behalf and he's confused some of the war strategy of Ahithophel that could have been very destructive for David and for the nation. And he's also helped David by putting some good friends on the inside of Absalom's camp to, to basically give him advice that basically puts Absalom and his army of rebels basically right into the hands of David and his army. So essentially, it's a setup. And essentially, as we open chapter 18 and we look here at David, he's on the outside of Jerusalem. He's outside of Mahanaim. And he is basically with his men um, preparing for this, what they believed would be a final battle. And David here is, oh man, he is distraught, you can tell. <laughs> David is wanting control over the outcome. You could tell that too. Because essentially he's like, hey, hey, I'm gonna go too. And his men have to be like, yo, David, like you don't need to go. Like they're actually after you. So how about you stay back and let us take a blow for you. Of all the people that don't need to be at, at greatest risk, it is you. Stay back at the city gate. And you hear this heart of David. What a complex thing it is sometimes in life for us to juggle multiple roles. Anybody ever had to juggle multiple roles? Anybody ever felt like that's a complex task? Good gracious, it's complex. God gives grace. God knows when we are in that place of complexity. And here David is both a king with calling and responsibility toward faithfulness and righteousness and Godwardness, but he's also a dad. He has this heart of love and this desire for mercy for his son. I ain't telling his guys, hey, go, go easy. Go easy on the boy. He's my son. Well, we get to verse 4 of chapter 18, and what we see here is this last phrase. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. Now, one of the things that I love to do, I love the Bible. Did y'all know that? Do you love the Bible? I would love for you to smile and say yes, all right? I want you to love the Bible. One of the things that I love about the Bible is the Bible helps us know about other places in the Bible. One of the best places to turn when you're trying to understand scripture is not first to Google or to the best book that you can find in your bookstore. It's just actually to learn to use the Bible to help you understand the Bible. It's a lot of fun. It's amazing when I travel overseas, people who don't have access to Christian resources in their language and they don't have Lifeway on every book, on every a corner, it's amazing that they still can understand the scripture. Isn't that crazy? The reason they can understand the scripture is because they actually read it. Sorry, that's another sermon. But I love the Bible. And one of the things that I want to do this morning is to actually show you, you know, last time I was kind of, we were kind of hard on David. We were looking at some of his failures and, and some of the frustrations that he had and the lingering uh, guilt and shame over his sin, right? And we all talked about last week how we can experience that, have our eyes too much on our past sin rather than the present grace of Jesus. But I do want to tell you that we have two Psalms in the, in the Bible that I believe reflect where David's heart is in this time that he's literally watching Absalom mounting rebellion coming in full force toward him, trying to take him, literally his own life, but also trying to take over the nation from a heart of godlessness, trying to take over the very throne that God himself 
would want to remain on. Two Psalms that I'll point you to, and I'll tell you why I can confidently tell you that these are the Psalms in David's heart at this moment. First is Psalm chapter 3. And if you look at the Bible, there are a few Psalms as you read through the scripture that actually have little headers that help you know, hey, this Psalm was written at this time by this person. Not all of them are like that. But this particular Psalm, and then there's one more I'm going to tell you about too, give us a little bit of insight into what's going on. It says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So here David is out in the wilderness at Mahanaim around this moment. Basically, could be when he's sitting here at the gate or just before, but essentially, as David is in isolation, he's writing. He, it's a redemptive moment for David because we see deep down in David's heart, there is still, despite his failures and despite his sin, his heart is still Godward. And yours and mine should be too. His heart is, is still inching Godward. Oh Lord, he says in Psalm 3, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, oh Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I will not be afraid, God, that there be many thousands of people coming against me. God, you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. I trust in you, God, for salvation. Do you hear David? Deep, deep down, despite his own over, I think, just a over, over, he has too much view of himself. Despite that, he, he's, he is looking toward God. And despite he's not standing with total confidence and calling, uh, leading up to this, it seems that God is gifting to him faith to cry out in dependence upon him once more. The other psalm that I want to point your attention to is Psalm chapter 63. And I do hope you'll make notes of this because, again, I'm trying to connect dots for you and just to help you learn the Bible. It's wonderful. Again, this is a psalm that's labeled in a particular way that helps us to know when, where, and who wrote it. And we can connect it to this moment in 2 Samuel. So it's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Again, if you look back to that moment here, where he's on the outskirts of Jerusalem and he's at my name, he's in the wilderness of Judah and the battle is about to enrage and he's sitting by the gate and we see a glimpse here into David's heart toward God. Oh God, verse one, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you, God, have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. 
David here, if you go back to verse 4 of chapter 18, standing by the side of the gate, releasing control, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And what we see here is in ways, friends, a picture of God's restoration. Friends, there's a song that I love, He Will Hold Me Fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Y'all know the rest of the song? Oh, my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. One of the things that I love about the truth of the gospel is that for those who are truly his, who are born again, who are redeemed, no matter how much of a failure we are, God is faithful to hold us fast. He loves us so, and he keeps us his. And we see here a picture of God's restoring grace, even here in David's life, even here in this moment, before the greatest tragedy unfolds that will rip apart his heart, we see a picture of a God who is gifting to David a view of himself, of a good God, of a faithful God, of an able God, of a gracious God, of a God who gives joy even in the midst of such brokenness. David here proclaiming out, but God, I know my hope is in you. Well, the story continues and we see there in verse 5 what I already told you that David basically says, be gentle, you see here, David as a king with those prayers in Psalm 3 and 63, wow, like, God, take my enemies out. And yet as a dad, oh, be gentle to Absalom, right? The complexity of that. But how interesting as we go on in the text and we look at verses 6 through 10, essentially the army goes out and there's this huge battle. It says the battle spreads over the face of the country and the forest devours tons of people. And then you get to verse 9 and 10. And how interesting is this? It's a telltale warning for all of us. It says that Absalom was riding on his mule. He's just literally, okay, he's out in the middle of the battle, riding along on his horse. And what ends up happening to him? His hair. I mean, dudes, this is one of the reasons. You've got to be careful about the, the, the new dudes, you know, because they like flop up here on the head. You know what I'm talking about? The man bun. It appears, I was trying to be funny, you guys, and that one bombed like 90% of my jokes, all right? I wish my little girl was here, she would have left. Um, but anyway, it's, it's tragic, but it's like his hairdo, literally, catch it, it's what brings him down. And if you remember back to the introduction of Absalom earlier in 2 Samuel, we read that he was such a proud man. And one of the things that he was so proud of was his appearance and even his hair. It even went so far to say he took his hair on an annual basis and weighed it before the people to basically boast in his own good looks and strength. Pride goes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. And friends, the very thing the very thing that Absalom prided himself on was the very thing that brought about his downfall. Friends, this is a proud man. He had not humbled himself before the Lord, and it was his pride that ended up catching him. And friends, the same will be true of you and me if we do not humble ourselves before the Lord. Absalom had tons in terms of worldly success, but he did not have relationship with God. And friend, you can have good looks, you can have strength, you can have friends, you can have money, you even can have success, a rep building reputation, but friends, if you do not have God, you are not successful in life. Success belongs to those who figure out the true meaning of life is to know and fear the Lord. And Absalom basically ends up hanging from a tree, which is a sign of curse here, and ends up, the dude comes and goes, look, I just saw, it's like they've been hunting down Absalom, he's like, I, I don't know if I saw this right, but it looks like Absalom's like hanging by his hair on a tree over there. And Joab's basically like, why are you telling me this? You should have killed him. And the dude's like, but wait, David said not to kill him. And Joab ends up taking it upon himself. As we get to verses 
13 to 15. And he takes three javelins in his hand and he thrusts them into Absalom while Absalom is still alive. And then he basically has his guys, his commanders and armor bearers that surrounded him to finish the job and they kill Absalom. And in verse 16 and 17 says, they take his body, they throw it into a pit and they cover it with stones. Now, all the while, if you read verse 24, what we see is David still sitting at the gates. He didn't know any of this has happened. And this odd little story about basically these one runner and then this other runner, they end up trying to like beat each other and they make their way to David. One basically is scared to death to tell him the whole truth. I don't know about Absalom. I know you're interested, but it was just, a, it was looked all fuzzy to me. And the other one shows up and basically what we learn here is in verse 31. The Cushite comes and he announces, good news, <laughs> good news. There's good news for David. And the good news is the Lord has delivered you this day from those who rose up against you. Now, if you look at Psalm 3 and you look at Psalm 63, is that what David prayed for? Yes or no? Yes. In other words, he's saying, good news, God has answered our prayers. God has saved you, King. God has saved the throne for a God-fearing man. God has saved our nation to be a nation unto God. God has prevailed. He's been faithful. He's delivered us. He struck down your enemies, God. And then, though, the king turns, and what do we read in that next phrase? The king says to the Cushite, what? What's his heart here? What about my son, right? And the Cushite turns and he says, in a veiled way, but the answer is very clear. May the enemies of the Lord, of the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. In other words, he's saying, Absalom is dead. And what we see ensue is if you look at verse 33, the king basically I mean, I don't know any of us that if we lost a child, I mean, I just can't imagine some of us in our church, I've walked with many of you who have gone through such pain, the pain of death and even the pain of a child. I can't imagine much deeper pain. I don't care how far your child falls away from the Lord or how far they fall away from you. It is still your child. You still love them. You still care about them. You still want the best for them. And if I got any parents in here, can I get a witness? Yes, right? We know. And this is David. David as a dad. And he just, he's deeply moved. And he moves up to the chamber. And he goes to, over the gate. And he just weeps. And he weeps. And he weeps. But something peculiar is happening here. Because if you look at verse, chapter 19, if you look back at your Bible and you look there at verse 1 and 2, it's not just any kind of weeping. What we see here, it seems like, is this almost like David has lost the complexity of the situation at hand. And it seems in a way that he's lost focus toward God. Because ultimately, friends, at the same time that David has lost a son, the nation has gained a victory. God has shown himself faithful to his people. And we see here that the victory that day ends up getting almost completely out of view. It's like God completely gets lost in this and it actually turns into a day of mourning because people are hearing, wait a second, like the, the king is just weeping and weeping. And the encouragement here, friends, is for us to learn something about God. And that takes us back to our core truth for the day. 
that is this, that ultimately, in the places of deepest pain, in the places of the most tremendous loss and brokenness of our lives, we have to keep moving toward God. We have to keep moving toward Jesus. And we have to keep taking all the broken pieces of our minds and of our hearts and of our lives. And friends, there are broken pieces of your mind, heart, and life, even to this day. And even in the midst of the brokenness and the pain, we have to make a choice to keep taking our brokenness to Jesus. Because he is a restorer, a restorer of brokenness. And in the most painful places, he offers healing and hope. Now, the reason I am saying that this is such a big deal, this overwhelming grief, you're going, are you reading into the text here? I'm not sure. Okay, good question. I love those kind of questions, right? Here's why I'm saying that somehow in this moment David is not moving as Godwardly as God would want him to because if you look at what happens in the early verses of chapter 19 something peculiar happens and it's that in the middle of all of this when people are basically trying to sneak into town because they're like uh oh did we do something wrong like we thought we were supposed to fight for victory and they're literally like sneaking into town as if they've done something wrong because they've heard David's upset about the victory. And there's just loss of focus, it seems. Here's why I say that. Because in chapter 19, something peculiar happens and that is God sends somebody into David's life to basically go, yo, this is my translation, okay? Yo, like, I know you lost your son, but we got to look toward God. We've got, we've got to look toward God. And we have to keep hope. Okay? We have, to, we have to shift our perspective. David, again and again, seems to struggle to put too much focus on the past, on sin, on sorrow, and not enough focus on presence of God today, present grace, future hope. Joab is the friend that comes in. In verse 1, it was told to Joab, you go back to the slide. Basically what Joab says to him is, David, you've got to bring your brokenness to God and you've got to trust him to heal you. David, hey, hey, David, you've got, yes, broken, yes, sorrow, yes, sadness. You've got to remember God. You have to keep going to God. Okay, that's, that's what Joab's saying. Verse one, it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day, it says, was turned into mourning for all the people. That they heard the king is grieving for his son. And if you go down to verse 5, Joab basically goes to David. And he confronts David. Takes a, takes a good friend sometimes to confront us when we're wrong. Y'all agree with that? Not many people are we willing to let actually talk sense into us sometimes. But aren't you thankful for people in your life that are a voice of God who can come and actually say, yo, remember God. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm so thankful for this. Now, Joab has not done right to David always, but in this moment, he's trying to get David's attention. He's like, today you've covered with shame the faces of your servants. You know, they've given themselves for you. Look, you're, you're loving those who hate you. In other words, you're, you're focused too much on, on Absalom and, and the enemy when it seems like you're like discouraging all of us who have actually loved the Lord and loved you and have seen this day of victory that you've prayed for come about. You've made it clear today, commanders and servants are nothing to you. And he goes on and he says, basically, like if, it seems like if Absalom were alive and we were all dead, you'd be happier. He's lost focus on God. Okay, no. Joab says to him there, start at verse 8, David, you have to get up. You've got to get up. He's not asking David to, to just suddenly 
immediately be over his son's death, but what he is asking David here is to be about God more than he is about his son. And that's not minimizing the loss of a son, but it's maximizing a view of God. And what he's saying is you've got to get up and you've got to go out and you've got to speak kindly to your servants. In other words, you have to remind people about God. And the whole rest of chapter 19, the reason I say this is such a turning point and I can be confident that this is really what was going on in David's heart is because from this point forward, what we see as Joab gets David Godward and encourages David toward hope and a future based on God and his grace and his faithfulness. From this point forward, we see a renewal of mind, a renewal of heart, and a renewal of life in David. We see restoration actually begin to come in David because the whole rest of the chapter is like a completely different man. And the whole rest of the book, it seems that God is actually working out the promise of restoration, healing, and hope in place of deepest pain into David's heart and life as David gets back Godward. Y'all tracking with me? So the core truth, it's almost in this moment as if Joab is saying, hey, 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 David, (laughs) you gotta go to God. You gotta remember God is a restorer of brokenness and in the place of deepest pain, David, Don't be overwhelmed like Thessalonians says. We grieve, but we're not grieved to the point of just despair, of overwhelming sorrow. We have a hope. We grieve as people of faith because we know God in the midst of our grief, and that changes everything. Don't forget God, David. In the place of deepest pain, he's a a healer. He's a hope giver. And his encouragement, bring your brokenness to God, David, and let him heal you. Do you see? I want to get practical here and then we'll close, all right? Um, I was up at a conference recently and um, I had the wonderful gift. One of the reasons I love going to conferences as a pastor is I get to sit under teaching. (laughs) It's so important for all of us, ministry leaders, pastors alike. We all need to sit under the word. We all need to just have somebody else speak truth into our life. And I was so grateful just to, just to be a nameless person sitting in a row going, bring it on. (laughs) Please minister to me. And so interesting, one of the topics that was chosen for this particular conference for church planters and leaders was a topic that was based out of the pain and the griefs and the sorrows that we have gone through collectively as a culture, as a nation, but particularly as a group of churches throughout the pandemic and church leaders. And the topic was on joy and God's restoration of joy in our lives. And I literally, you guys, sat there as I was listening to that message and I just cried. (laughs) I just cried. And uh, some of you think that real men don't cry. And maybe I'm not a real man. I'll take it. Whatever. I happen to believe that real men cry. And that I am one. But I just sat there and wept. Because as I sat there, I recognized, hmm. Like, it's one thing to talk about this, like, okay, I could talk about this theologically, I could talk about this theoretically, I could even proclaim this to you this morning, but it's a whole other thing personally. It's a whole other thing personally. And I just realized, like, man, like, there are places in my heart and life that just, yeah, like, they've been, they've just, they hurt. There's, like, pain. There's specific things, there's general things that, like, man, like, I feel broken sometimes. I feel broken a lot of times. Anybody with me? And you just feel pain. And the exhortation that they were giving was like, do you know that in the middle of your pain, like Jesus can bring you joy? Like, do you know that in the middle of the sorrow, (laughs) like Jesus can bring healing and hope? And I just sat there and began to cry because what I began to recognize was like, oh man, like 
Too often I can be like David where I just get like overcome by all the things that are hard and are broken and are painful and have gone wrong and not be as overcome by the goodness and the faithfulness and the promise and the grace of God. Psalm chapter 30, which we don't know exactly when was written, but I want to read for you the first five verses of the psalm. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and you have not let my foes rejoice over me. This sounds like somebody that could have been David at a time like this where there's a restoration of perspective. Oh God, I do praise you because you have been faithful. You have answered prayer. I don't understand everything, but God, I know you are a faithful God and a covenant-keeping God and you God who's kept me. Oh Lord, my God, I've cried to you for help, verse two, and you have healed me. God, you're a healer. God, you're a healer. God, as I've come to you, you're a healer. God, you're a healer. How often do we keep that view of God in front of us? Less about what we need healing from, more about what he's able to do. Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. And look at this, verse 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor for a lifetime. And this is a verse I bet many of you know. Who knows this verse? Weeping may tarry for the what? For the night. But joy comes with the morning. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Do you guys know that Jesus is a giver of joy? John 15, he says, I've come. You have life abundantly. Your joy may be complete, right? Like Jesus wants to fill every nook and cranny of our hearts and life to the point that literally our experience is joy. Joy because of Jesus. Sure, you can get joy from other things, but the joy I'm talking about today is not a partial joy. It's not a temporary joy. I'm talking about the real deal joy and a joy that lasts forever. I'm talking about a person whose name is Jesus. Jesus is joy and Jesus gives joy. But one of the things here that we know is there can be moments in our life where that joy gets kind of pushed out of our hearts. The disciples struggled with this even in John 16 after Jesus promises joy and he goes, wait a second, I see the things I'm telling you are disheartening you. <laughs> but I'm telling you here, your sorrow will be turned into joy. What's amazing here is he, he's... He's basically helping the disciples and helping us know that joy can be experienced even in the midst of sorrow. Sometimes, friends, I believe that we almost like think that if things are painful, if things are hard, or things that feel broken, that it must mean that there's no possibility for us to have joy. And yet the complexity of the life with Jesus is in the midst of brokenness, he can still give us joy. Because joy is not defined for us by circumstance, it's defined for us by the presence of a person whose name is Jesus. <laughs> and he's saying it's not sorrowful, then joyful, He's saying sorrow and joy at the same time. And one day you will see that even the very things that caused you sorrow will be transformed into the things that bring you joy. It was said at the conference that I was listening to, joy is the inevitable mark of the believer. It's not the immediate mark of the believer. If so, you're going to end up in a cheap joy. <laughs> A fake. Y'all know that Christian joy that you, you have sometimes at church? I say Christian in quotes, okay, for those who are listening online. But that kind of joy where you go, how's everything doing? And literally everything in your life is terrible and you go, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, I'm fine. Good. Yeah, I'm all good. And literally we almost like don't allow one another the depth of community and intimacy with each other emotionally that God wants us to have in order to actually experience him. We ought to be honest about when we're not fine. 
And everything's not fine all the time. So if you always say, I'm good, then you're not telling the truth. Life is hard. Pain is real. Brokenness is present. But joy is the inevitable mark. It means we're in the midst of all of it. While it's not immediate, sure. I mean, we've got to worship through pain. We've got to cry through pain. We've got to talk to friends through pain. We've we got to know where we are if we're still there. But we are Godward. In other words, we keep moving in the midst of all of that toward God. And joy is the inevitable mark. And that's what the Psalm 30 verse 5 teaches. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, one of the mistakes that we have in our culture and even in the Christian circles today is that we think somehow time heals wounds. The verse 5 in chapter 30 cannot be plucked out of the whole psalm and then you go using it to say, well, just give it some time. Weeping is for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Just give it some time. I'm sorry. That ain't true. That is just not true. Time does not heal wounds. Just talk to people who have carried around stuff they haven't dealt with and been healed from their whole life. They sweep it under the rug. Time heals wounds. And yet, it's very present until it's actually brought to Jesus. Friends, time does not heal wounds. God heals wounds. Time does not heal wounds. Jesus heals wounds. The context of that verse is, oh God, oh God, oh God, weeping is for a night, joy is for the morning, oh God, oh God, oh God. It's Godward. God, you bring healing. It's not time that brings healing. God brings healing. And friends, if you are here today, David can be a prime example for you. Time was not going to make Absalom's death any better. The only one who can bring healing and hope in the midst of sorrow is God. If you're waiting on time to make it better, it's not going to happen. It may make you more numb to it, but just wait till something triggers it later. You'll realize it's still there. Friends, don't numb yourself to pain. Recognize what's broken and what's painful and move toward Jesus. Move toward Jesus. And I want to close by just looking at the verse here in John 16. Because one of the things that we see here after he says, your sorrow will be turned into joy, he gives this example of when a woman is giving birth, it says, she has sorrow because her hour has come. If there's any women in here who have had children from their own body, y'all can give a witness right now, that is not easy. I'm a man who stood by a woman as we gave birth to two daughters, and I go, oh my word, baby, what do you want? I'll give you anything anything you want. Now I understand why there's prizes and stuff because I'm like, that is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly difficult, overwhelmingly painful, overwhelmingly harsh. But then Jesus says, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. <laughs> Somehow, nine months of all that pain, the moment that that child comes out, wah, wah, and the woman beholds her child, all of it is forgotten because she's now staring at a baby who she loves. Friends, some of us... <laughs> are staring too much at our pain and we're not staring enough at the baby. <laughs> it's weird on Facebook, you don't ever see women post pictures of their painful labor. All you see is cute little Micah, cute little Sally. Look at little Nate, Caroline and Emma. We just post pictures of the, we post pictures of the baby. Y'all know what I'm talking about? In other words, let's put behind the pain and let's focus on the outcome. Is it this child wonderful? Do you see? Friends, the analogy that Jesus is giving is, look, 
my disciples, some of us are staring at all the broken stuff, but friends, you've got to stare at Jesus. Friends, in our life, we've got to learn not to stare at all the broken stuff and all the painful stuff. Sure, be honest about it. Grieve it well. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but friends, we've got to stare. If there's one thing we've got to focus on, we've got to put up on Facebook, not the pictures of the labor, but the pictures of the baby. We've got to focus on Jesus, who is joy who is restorer, who is a healer, who is a hope giver. We have to focus on Jesus. And what Jesus says is, I'll see you again and your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. In other words, because I'm with you, with you always. Jesus, friends, is a restorer. Amen? He's a restorer. In all brokenness, he's a restorer. In the places of your deepest pain, he brings healing and hope. I told you today that I want to focus on Jesus. And as we move toward invitation, I want to do just that. One of the things that overwhelms me is in verse 33 of chapter 18. Y'all look at it real quick. As he went weeping, David said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. Do y'all see it? This right here, friends, is what I call, and you should call, a foreshadow. And here's what the foreshadow is. It's a foreshadow of a true and better coming king whose name is Jesus. And the reason I say that, here Absalom is in the height of his rebellion, his wickedness, his sin, and yet here's a king who's also a father, a righteous judge who's also a loving presence, and says, oh, that I wish I could have taken your place. But friends, I want to tell you, there is a true and better king who has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. And in Galatians chapter 3, I want to connect the dot for you real quick. Galatians 3, it says about Jesus that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Hanging on a tree was given in Deuteronomy as a sign of the curse of God against sinners and rebels. Absalom hung on a tree. David says, after Absalom's death, oh, that I could have taken your place. But yet he didn't. But there's a true and better king who came, whose name is Jesus, who actually did. And on the tree that we deserve to die upon because of our sin and rebellion and shame, we have a savior whose name is Jesus who actually took our place. And he died there so that all who trust in him, who come to him, would not have the consequence of sin, but have the opportunity for forgiveness and restoration and newness of life. Oh, what a wonderful savior. Jesus is a restorer of brokenness. And he did it by giving his own life for you and for me. And because of his resurrection from the grave in the most painful places, he now offers hope and healing. And do you know what your response needs to be? Similar to Joab, I tell you today, you've got to bring your brokenness to Jesus. It's time. Yo. We got to focus as much on the pain as we focus on the baby. We got to focus on Jesus. We got to bring our brokenness to him. And I'm urging you today, bring your brokenness to him. In chapter 19, verse 8, as our band comes, one of the things we see is that as the king arose and took his seat in the gate, guess what? The people were told, hey, the king is sitting in the gate. And guess what happened? All the people came before the king. Do y'all see that? Well, I got news for you, friends. We have a king whose name is Jesus. And Jesus took our place. (laughs) But after three days, Jesus arose and he now sits, so to speak, at a gate. 
and he invites you. Come to him. Jesus was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, but he poured out all of his sorrows, even unto death. And God caused him, after that perfect sacrifice for your sin and mine, to be raised to newness of life. So the end of the story is no longer the pain and the brokenness and the sadness and the despair. The end of the story is hope. The end of the story is healing. The end of the story is life. Our king sits at a gate and he invites us to come. The question is, will you come to Jesus? He's a restorer, friends. He's a restorer of all brokenness. And in the most painful place of your heart and life, he can bring healing and he can bring hope. He sits at the gate. Will you come? Father, I pray today that there would be people coming to you, Jesus, right now. Holy Spirit, would you minister to us in this time? You're so present. Oh, God, you're so present right now. You're very present. You're inviting us to come. Thank you, Jesus. You're restoring. Even now, God, you're restoring. You're forgiving. Touching hearts and lives. Oh, God, we just ask your forgiveness for how we too often get so overcome looking the wrong direction. Oh, God, our pain is real. Our sorrows are real. The brokenness, the difficulties are real. But, God, we come to you looking for perspective toward you, Jesus. You are a restorer. You're a healer. You're a hope giver. Oh, God, would you pour out your restoring grace here and now today. Thank you, Father. Thank you again for joining us for today's Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis. We want to encourage you to join us in person for worship soon. No podcast can ever replace the good design of God in gathering in person with other believers for worship in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with ICC, you can visit us at iccmemphis.com. As we close, we offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Thanks again for joining us.